trip you always get my goat I like trains and buses but you like a ferry boat Well the next time we go traveling ships are out I now declare You go your way I'll go mine I'll meet you over there You take a ship for yourself Welcome to the next episode of the Seagadet Podcast. And I want to uh, let everybody know that we have renamed it. Uh, so what formerly was a scuttlebutt, uh, we decided to go with something a little bit more future forward thinking. And so uh, it is now the crow's nest. And that sounds much more philosophical, thoughtful, pensive. Uh, with the crow's nest, we get up there in that high position and we see out far into the future, into the horizon. We know what's coming. We know what's going. We know what dangers lurk out there. Didn't work out so well for those in the Titanic, but we'll forget about that. So the crow's nest is your place for information about the sea cadets, the Navy, and otherwise. Okay, so that's, all right, that was weird. In any event, um, today uh, is what I hope to be the first of a series of conversations with people that we uh, are really an integral part of the Sea Cadet program. Um, and in case you don't know, we have sort of our own quote-unquote chain of command where we've got NHQ, which is office in Arlington, where, where, um, where I'm a part of. And then we've got um, National Headquarters representatives. And really... That's sort of where the rubber starts to meet the road, you know, where they know their areas, they know their communities, they know what resources are available, they know uh, the cadets and the adult volunteers out there uh, better in terms of what their needs are um, and so forth and what resources can be leveraged to make this thing really work. And so we rely on them a lot to um, translate messages, uh, to offer feedback, to collect feedback and information from the field so that we can do something with it. And so as a siphon, as a filter, we really do rely on them greatly. And so we're very appreciative, especially of the uh, wealth of experience that they have um, in and out of the Navy, in the Coast Guard. Uh, with all these years of experience, they really have that vocabulary down, that understanding, that attitude down. And that really translates well into how we sort of implement the program. And so today, I'm going to be sitting down with virtually uh, with Vahan Manugian. And um, he sent me this extensive bio that I'm going to include in the show notes. But I tell you, you know, his region is the Pacific Southwest. And so California and so forth, in case you geography people. Um, in any event, uh, you know, he's instrumental in a lot of ways. Everyone is, but, you know... Uh, we hear from him a lot, and he's really offered a lot of his time to uh, support the program, to create new courses, uh, running those trainings. So, uh, you know, we love Vahan. We love hearing from him. We love his ideas. And so what I'm going to do is just turn it right over to uh, my conversation with Vahan. It's going to hit this for now. Um, so thanks for being on the podcast. Um, I kind of just want to hear... Uh, where you're coming from, you know, your experiences, you were in the Navy, correct? I was. Okay. And so, um, you know, what were your experiences there? I guess, um, you know, how, when you think about the Secadet program, you know, a lot of kids might be considering it, maybe they might not, and that's okay. And so 
what was the choice like for you? You know, if you want to talk about that, you know, transitioning from school and then deciding to uh, join the Navy, that must be a, a big decision. Well, it was for me a later in life decision. Okay. So I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, Northeast Los Angeles, uh, in a small community called Eagle Rock, which is in between Pasadena and Glendale, California. And Pasadena is most famously known for the Rose Parade mm-hmm. and uh, the Rose Bowl game. Uh, so that's kind of the area I grew in. I went to a K-12 alternative school, which was not because I was a bad kid, but it was uh, based on open education mm-hmm. and learning how to take responsibility for your own uh, educational path. So in what would be normally junior or middle school and high school, I was in classes where we had seventh graders all the way through 12th graders because we only had single subject teachers, kind of like a one room schoolhouse. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, we would sit there and we'd be presented with a schedule of classes and told what our requirements were. And I would sit there and we would be making our class schedules out hmm. kind of things you would do in college. Uh, so it required a lot of independent thinking and a lot of discipline in order to be successful. It was also uh, founded kind of the post-60s, early 70s. So there was a lot of uh, freedom of movement. Uh, and people were a little more freer than they are now uh, in today's society. So my original intent was actually to be a doctor. Okay. And in my junior year of high school, I got a summer job working for the YMCA. And I was a day camp counselor, front desk receptionist, and janitor. And that all made up for full-time work during the summer. So when you're 16 years old and you can make minimum wage, which, by the way, was $1.85 an hour. Wow. um, That was was considered big time then. Yeah. uh, For someone who's 16. And so I worked through the summer and realized that I really did like working with people. And so I did that. And then during the school year, I got hired on to do after school child care as a counselor and uh, youth sports and kind of some of the small, smaller programming that the local YMCA did. And the executive director approached me and said, you know, I know you've always talked about going to med school, which is a great thing, but I think you would make great YMCA director. Hmm. Uh, and we really need to, I want you to explore that. And so I did. I wound up going to a local college, uh, Occidental College, which was the same uh, college that President Obama attended for a small period of time. Okay. As a matter of fact, I think he came the year after I started. And so I did the I did that whole college thing uh, and did work for the YMCA. And I got picked up as a program director. Uh, and I worked in the West San Fernando Valley. That was my first job. I was the youngest professional director in the Los Angeles YMCA system. Hmm. And I went from being a program director. I went to another branch as a senior program director, uh, and associate executive director and actually helped open up, um, a new YMCA facility. So I was part of the building process and I did that until the early nineties mm-hmm. uh, and realized that while I liked that work, there wasn't a lot of upward mobility at that point. Right. So I got out of professional Y work 
and went to opening my own company where I provided uh, services to people that were based on things I'd learned during my career as a YMCA director. Okay. Uh, and my biggest client was the Los Angeles YMCA system. Um, so we did that. And then uh, at the same time, because of my love of medicine, um, I wound up going to EMT and paramedic school. Okay. And so when I was teaching uh, EMTs up at Glendale College, there was a sign that got posted and it said, U.S. Navy looking for people to teach emergency medicine. Please call this number. Hmm. And it turns out it was a recruiter. So I called him and gave him my background and said, yeah, why don't you come in and talk? And remember, back in the 90s, recruiters really kind of had a bad rap and that they would hook you in on the line, reel you in, sell you a bill of goods, and then it always wound up being something different. So... I went and talked to him and he explained, he goes, yes, uh, you know, you have the, the knowledge that we need and we, I think you would do well. He goes, the only way we can pay you though is you need to join the reserve. And I'm like, okay, why not? And so I wound up joining the reserve and have been doing that. I just retired last December 1st uh, after 24 years, seven months, three days, 12 hours and four minutes. So, uh, so you haven't been counting. No, you haven't. I counting. definitely was not counting. And I actually <laughs> counted more for fun because I really did enjoy, uh, being in the Naval Reserve. So, and I did that again for all that time the with the exception of, uh, two deployments. Okay. And then I was on active duty for that time. So what would be, for those who don't know, and I, I certainly don't cause I don't have the, uh, military background necessarily, but um, what would be the difference then between the reserves at that point or what what is the difference there? So active duty is someone and that's their full-time job. They're on the hook 24-7. Uh, they usually work a regular work day unless they're in an operational unit and that requires them to work longer hours. Okay. Uh, as opposed to the reserves, which used to get the nickname weekend warrior because you would go Right. One weekend a month, and then two weeks of training, usually in the summertime. But because of the up-tempo we've had since the 90s, really the weekend warrior has become a part of the entire naval picture. Okay, uh, You have some reservists who have been on active duty for longer than some active duty people have. Um, but you do the same job. You're paid the same uh, amount of money mm -hmm. that they get. You get the same benefits when you're on active duty. Uh, as a reservist, you get paid, uh, what, two thirtieths of the pay, but it's the same pay rate. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, you advance through just like the active duty does. So I came in as an E3 mm -hmm. uh, because of my experience. I was a hospitalman um, and I retired four years, seven months, and however many days later uh, as the chief petty officer okay. as an E7. So, you know, you have, you make your career what you want it to be. Right. So that sounds like it's maybe an advantage for someone that, like you said, doesn't want to be on the hook 24-7 and, you know, wants to leave some room where and when they can to, to pursue other interests or, or other jobs or whatever. Is that, yeah. 
Absolutely. Okay. And, and it is. It's a great way when you say, I really don't want this to be my full-time job, but yeah. I really am excited by it. So I utilized it because I was doing youth work um, and it was the way that I kind of fed my love of medicine uh, and everything that goes with it. So what what is it about your love of medicine? I mean, where do you think that came from or or... I mean, how did that originate know. for you? It's just kind of, I like doing science, even though I wasn't very good at it. Um, but there was just this love of, of working with people and making them feel better and trying to, I think it also had to do when I was younger of the fact that I love to figure out solutions um, to very to situations, the things that were going on, you know, it's kind of that mis- murder mystery, you know, who right. done it, and trying to find the answer. Well, this must be great um, for you to follow in the news now. I mean, talk about talk about a mystery and a puzzle. Well, I'll tell you, there was a there was a chance we'd heard early on uh, that there was a possibility that some of us newly retired reservists were going to get recalled to active duty. That hasn't happened yet. Okay, uh, and it still could. You never know. It's the way of the world. Uh, even though we're retired, we're on what they call the reserve retired list, meaning that they still have me on the hook uh, for recall up until I think thirty years. So I have I have a couple years to go on that one. I think five years. So who knows? Anything could happen in that time. But it was through the reserves that I actually found out about speak to death. Um, the first day that I reported to the Long Beach Reserve Center in Long Beach, California, um, and I walked in and I had been issued uniforms and what did I know? I'd never been in the Navy. So I, but being older, you know, you'd know where to look for information. I somehow was able to get my uniform put together. And that was back in the days where, uh, enlisted wore cotton white. It was white pants, white shirt. All we needed was a little white hat. Okay. Uh, not the sailor hat. And we could have probably sold ice cream out of a truck. <laughs> um, so I walk in and I'm, I'm talking to a friend that I had met during the indoc process. And here come these young looking sailors in dungarees. And these are the old school dungarees, uh, chambray shirt, you know, jean pants, uh, walking around with their little ball caps on. And I turn and I go, wow you know, we must really have a recruiting problem because those sailors look like they're like in middle school and high school. And he laughed and he goes, well, that's probably because they are. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, those are sea cadets. I'm like, what is a sea cadet? And sure enough, then I saw a little patch on their shoulder and I'm like, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, it's kind of like a Boy Scout program in the Navy. I'm like, okay, it sounds good. And of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, hey, I kind of like that. I need to find out more about that because, you know, love of youth development and all. But let me figure out my own naval career and what I'm supposed to be doing before I dive into that one. Three, four weeks later, uh, one of the retail stores that I owned in Burbank, Mm -hmm. um, a gentleman came in and we had a little, it was a commercial lock shop. We did lock and security and all that. But the people we bought it from had uh, one of their one of the moms of the owners like to do shaver repair, 
And in walks this gentleman, Carl Phillips, and he's wearing a ball cap, and it says, Betsy Ross, U.S. Naval Sea Cadet Corps. And we knew Carl just because he'd always been in the store. And I'm like, hey, Carl, tell me, what is this sea cadet thing all about? And he gives me the usual spiel about, you know, working with kids. And, and we meet at the Encino Reserve Center. And it turns out two things. Number one, at the Encino Reserve Center was where Betsy Ross, that Carl was involved in, and Bryce Canyon were located. Two units co-located, and they were the only all-male and all-female units in the entire country. And to this day, they still have remained through our entire period of we need to merge everyone together and make it co-ed and all that. Uh, these two units have endured that process and have maintained an all-male and all-female membership. Mm. And it's not because we would not admit somebody uh, who was not male or female in one or the other units. It just happened to be the way it was. And people accepted it, and it's great, and they have a good time. So that was the uh, kind of the first unique thing about my start in Sea Cadet. The second one was that the gentleman that we had bought the lock shop from was the commanding officer of the all-male unit, Rice Canyon. And it turns out he had been a Sea Cadet from when he was a kid back in the 60s. Okay. And so, of course, uh, he and I chatted, and he asked me to come on board, and I filled out the paperwork, and he said, uh, so what are your goals one day? I said, well, I'm going to be the CEO of this unit one day. You know, and I was young and, and kind of cocky, and now I'm old and kind of cocky. Um, <laughs> and he goes, oh, okay, well, we'll see about that. And then that was the start of the Sea Cadet career. That was in 1997. I was the training officer um, and became the XO. And then when he moved on to be a regional director, I became CEO of the unit. And then he stepped out of the role as RD, um, and I stepped into that role. So they asked me to take that role on. And then in 19, or excuse me, 2005, it was October 16th. Uh, I became the senior regional director for Region 11, which covered all of Southern California and Southern Nevada. Okay. And so I accepted the role on October 16th. And on October 17th, I deployed for a year uh, in support of Operation uh, Enduring Freedom. And so I wound up in Fallujah, Iraq. Wow. Uh, for a year. So took the role and my deputy wound up taking over while I was gone. So I came back and, and was the SRD up until uh, January of 2019 uh, when I became the first uh, what we'll call senior enlisted individual to become a national headquarters rep, a role that had traditionally been given to retired commanders and captains. Hmm. And that's been a year and a couple months, and here we are today having a great interview. A year and a couple of months. Wow. So what... I mean, how do you see the role of the uh, NHQ reps? I mean, how do you, you know, what do you see that role is and, and what are the kinds of things that you do uh, in your region and otherwise? So, um, well, first of all, I think we're visionaries. Mm -hmm. So we're the ones who come up with the wild ideas okay. and, and try to put them in such a format that fits within the guidelines of the program. Um, and uh, move them forward in order to help us grow. And part of that is because 
it is a national program, uh, there's no part of the country that's going to be exactly the same. Right. So the resources and the people and the visions we have in California and Nevada are not going to be the same as they would in Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, um, or uh, Illinois, Michigan, Florida, uh, Texas, Guam and Puerto Rico, Hawaii. It's all going to be different because the people and the resources you have are different. Right. So as an HQ rep, it's a matter of being able to rope all that in and come up with a great vision to keep us moving forward so that we don't always do what it is we've done for the last 50 years. Well, and, and, and what you highlighted real quick is, is super important because the program relies heavily. I mean, there's, there's sort of the national stuff, the, you know, the coursework and, and, and the requirements and all of that. But I think, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think what you all definitely do is really tap into the local resources to make the experiences because that's really what the true value is. I mean, of course, there's background knowledge that you need, but it's really about the the local trainings or the regional trainings and those experiences that are so crucial. Um, it is true, but what's even more important than the resources are the people that we work with. Right. Both the adults and the cadets. And that's really the driving force, I believe, behind our program. So the second important role that we fill is we are really resource managers mm-hmm. and more importantly, people managers. Um, it's an all volunteer force, which is one of the, one of the strengths that I learned very early on in my YMCA career, uh, because like the sea cadets, the YMCA was primarily other than, you know, childcare, fitness and aquatic staff, um, a lot of our programs were all based on volunteer service, especially mm-hmm summer camps and youth programs and things of that nature. And so, uh, again, early in my YMCA career, one of my executive directors said, your biggest success as a Y director will be to engage your volunteers and get them as excited as you are about what you do. Mm-hmm. And the only difference is that you get a paycheck and they do not. And that is one of the unique uh, parts of Cadet is, if you really could sit down and just meet the people for who they are, you would be amazed at the, at the dynamics that are out there and the, um, the, what I call boots on ground. It's really headquarters reps. We're important, but we're really not that important. (laughs) Um, yes, there's work we have to do and we play an important role, but truly our volunteers are our best resources. And the things that they do on a daily basis throughout, at least in my area, in California, Nevada, um, we couldn't pay for employing them all. Right. And the number of hours that they put in. And and getting paid while it's always nice uh, is truly not, I think, the driving force of anything you do. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you love what you do, whether you get paid or not, uh, you will be successful at it. And the only difference between, again, a volunteer and a staff person is one gets a paycheck and the other does not. Standards are the same. Vision is the same. Drive is the same. Um, and it's really fun to just watch those folks in action. And having been a volunteer in the program for 22 years before I joined the headquarters staff, um, I've watched, I'm on my third generation 
I think of kids coming through. So now I have individuals who were cadets at Bryce Canyon who are now coming back and they're the leadership of that unit mm-hmm. and their kids are being involved. Um, and we still reminisce. And again, just like anything else in life, things evolve over time. So the things we could do 22 years ago in the program, what some folks refer to as game playing, uh, we could never do now. And right. it's not because necessarily right or wrong. Um, although there was definitely in the line you had to hold to, and it got crossed many times back then. Um, it's more of, uh, you know, the experiences that we created back then and it being a different time and our approaches were different. Um, but these folks are, are successful. Uh, we have, I have one guy and I remember him adamantly. He was a smart kid, uh, but he also knew how to push the buttons of everybody. And now he's a successful attorney. He's retired from the Marine Corps. He was a Marine Corps officer. Um, and he came back to Bryce Canyon and now he's leading that unit and he's wow. doing great things. Um, the ability to blend tradition and history and still maintain a modern forward thinking atmosphere and attitude, um, is just a, it's a great thing to watch. It's what makes it fun to do what it is that we do. Well, and so that's, you know, and I've heard that on many occasions that it really is the, the adult volunteers that are doing all of this work. And, you know, anytime we come up with some kind of new system or project or whatever, you know, we really have to think about how that is going to impact, you know, their daily lives. And so how do you keep uh, your adults motivated? How do you get the volunteers, like you said before, as motivated and as excited as you are about what they're doing? How, how does that work? Well, I think it, it's on a scale. You will have the adults who are just as excited as you are, and so you throw an idea out there. Mm-hmm. And I call them challenges sometimes, not ideas. Okay. Uh, I was famous for my mantra of, I need to talk to you because I have a challenge for you. And Uh-oh. people would laugh and go, okay, every time you have a challenge, that just means more work. Right, exactly. And, and it was usually true. Um, so there's that group. And then there's the other ones who are set in their ways. Um, and sometimes you, you look at it and you say, okay, um, is what they're doing really going to affect us? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it have a negative impact? It doesn't, you know what? I respect the fact that they do it that way. We have a, uh, one of the officers in our area, um, and he's been around the program about as long as I have actually a little longer. And he's got a way of doing things. And I don't, uh, I try not to interfere unless it's going to have an impact on the overall outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, and then you have everything in between. So then you appreciate people for what they have to offer. Um, as long as it doesn't have a negative impact on the goals that you're trying to set and the direction that you're trying to go in, then you let people kind of do their thing. And eventually they come around or they don't come around. And then as the kind of the leader of the group, you have to say, is this really, is this really going to make a big enough difference that I want to make changes? Mm-hmm. Or is it just kind of like the, kind of like putting, uh, uh, 
flavoring in your food. You have to find the right balance. Right. And the balance isn't always um, what you think it should be. The other thing that I tell people is that they are all a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> so when you're in a role like I am and working with volunteers, you have to realize that just because you think it's a good idea, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. Right. And, you know, in, in a lot of places and a lot of programs, folks think hearing negative feedback is going to put them on the out. And I'm actually the opposite. If you really don't like an idea I have, then call me on it right. and we'll chat about it and we'll fight about it. And then when we walk out the door though, we're going to be one solid voice. Whether I agree with you or you agree with me, doesn't matter when we go out and we serve the people. And that's really what we're doing. Um, just because we're volunteers doesn't mean we're not serving people mm. and we're serving some of the most precious cargo out there when you come, when you talk about kids. Right. Um, at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. Well, and you know, it's, you know, of the, I mean, even in schools, that's what makes this so interesting because uh, for me, I don't even see parents and volunteers um, you know, the people that are actually doing the day to day, they normally don't have that much influence over how things operate uh, at a much wider level. And so when we're talking about the challenges that we have coming up in the months ahead um, with uh, the shutdown and so forth and the public health crisis, um, I'm just amazed at how much input not only we ask of, of, of the folks out there, but also how willing they are to give it, how willing they are to help us, you know, create manuals or uh, really make things better. So I think it's definitely a two-way street in that regard. And it, it seems like that's what you've been talking about, where, you know, we're all, all of our ideas are, are relatively equal and it's a two-way street in that we want to improve things, but then we at the same time want you to tell us how we can improve things because you're ultimately the ones that are going to have to carry this stuff out. You know, you're going to be entering in the information and all of that. I mean, so for me, I'm really seeing it as a, a two way street and in a lot of different uh, programs or, or initiatives, you don't really get that. Uh, that's true. No, you, you, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, with the public health crisis that we're having, I am amazed in a positive way of the number of people who have stepped up to the plate, not only in our volunteer force, but in our parent force. Historically, I think in our program, a lot of folks have not volunteered because they either think, well, I don't have a military background or I don't know how to work with kids right. or I'm not sure if I'm going to be good at this. And because of stay at home orders and social distancing and our our need to continue moving forward parts of our program. We've had to enlist the help of parents and I've talked to many of them who've said, wow, you know, doing the PRT wasn't that hard. Maybe when this is all over, maybe I can volunteer for the unit and, and be their PRT coordinator because mm -hmm. I know how to do this now. And, and so we've, we have had to uh, not necessarily change the process, but simplify the explanation right. so that it's not scary and help people realize they really do have capabilities and it takes all kinds of different people in order to make the train move forward or those, I should say to make the ship sail. There you um, go. 
And, and I've always given that advice to unit CEOs and RDs and others that I've worked at. Don't look at it as you have to do everything. Take your pie and then more slices you can cut it into, meaning taking a, a job or a task and cutting it into smaller chunks and asking a parent, you know what? All I need you to do is every month we give awards out. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to prepare the certificates based on a list of names I give you? Well, this parent's like, well, absolutely. Yeah, I have four kids and I can't come to drill all the time, but I know how to work a computer and I have a printer. Sure, pass that on to me. All of a sudden, you have now um, taken the burden off someone else because someone else is going to be doing that little piece of the pie. They feel invested. They're involved. Um, they're encouraging volunteerism, which is something that um, has lacked in our country, I think, overall. Uh, and so they're setting a good example for their kids. And it's a win-win for everybody. Well, that's so interesting because, um, you know, uh, that you highlighted that I think a lot of people that are, get into these kinds of things um, think that you have to be the leader and that's it, that there's all or nothing. And that means that you have to wear multiple hats. But I think what you identified was, you know, interesting to me is that, well, you don't have to be the all or none leader that has to know and be an expert on anything. There's different staff roles, staffing roles that you can have that are tailored to your specialties. So if you're good at PR, then you can be, you know, a public relations or an outreach person for the unit or if you you know you have that military background then you can be the person who organizes a lot of the the trainings and logistics or you know where kids are staying and things like that so there really is a place for all the different kinds of skills and and the amount of time that you really have to volunteer so um, I think you definitely pointed something out that when folks are first thinking about this that you know, they think, oh, I've got, I've got this 700-page manual and then I've got to be an expert on everything. But that's not necessarily true. You can hone in on what area that, you know, you think that uh, is best suited for you and where you think you can help the most. And then you can work with a team of people to make this thing operate, make that ship go, and not necessarily have to do it all yourself. So I think that's pretty important. It is. And it, that also is, holds true for our cadet force, too. Right. Um, and that's, that's part of leadership development. And, you know, we, of course, are building uh, leaders of character, future leaders of character. Um, and so when we can teach them those skills early on, it just makes it easier for everybody involved. Um, as I said earlier on, I'm a resource manager. Mm-hmm. So I can either choose to do it all myself, and then I'm going to have a very long work week, or I can get other people excited about it and have them be uh, part of the process so they feel excited about what I'm excited about. Uh, we found that out here in California that when we run our, our summer and more importantly, our winter training, um, this past winter we had over 700 uh, adults and cadets involved at eight different training sites. Mm. And a lot of the people that are running those trainings had come in, you know, as volunteers through the program. And just by giving them the opportunity and a little guidance um, and the freedom to fail also, because part of growth is failure. Um, And anyone who says otherwise, 
um, personal opinion is got their head in the sand. Right. Um, that that only develops our opportunity to grow our program in the future. So that if I only have to manage 10 things this time around and I train 10 people to do those 10 jobs or 10 tasks or 10 leadership roles, Mm -hmm. then the next time around they come in and they, they have an idea of what to do. And so now they start planning. Well, that allows me to now shift my focus and maybe train five, eight, 10 more people Mm -hmm. to help them. And then it just kind of, it has a snowball effect. Um, And that's where I think uh, we're really successful. If you look across the country at the amount of talent that we have, it is simply mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And when they all come together, the synergy uh, that you feel, the excitement you feel, uh, it's like we tell recruits, uh, cadets who come to training for the first time. Uh, we're going to tell you how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, and you're going to do it, and you will be successful. And then at graduation, we tell the parents, you know, we're so glad you're here. You're clapping and cheering because your cadets uh, are doing such a great job. They look great out there. I said, the beauty of what we get to experience as volunteers is we knew what it took to get them there. Right. So you see your cadet in dress uniform walking across the grinder. We're the ones who saw them trying to make that PRT score even better or having to, you know, work at their drilling and marching, get into step and having their uniform just right. All those processes that it took to get them there. We got to experience that. That's what our payback is. Right. Um, So it is, it's, it's a very rewarding, uh, place to work with, uh, people you meet, uh, lifelong friendships that are made outside the program. Uh, it just, it's a, it's a great organization. Well, you made this easy. So California, Nevada are lucky to have you. So, um, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time and, uh, sharing your experiences with us. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. All right. So that was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I certainly did. Always like talking to Vahan. Uh, it's interesting <laughs> using first name. I, you know, I hope that's okay. But in any event, um, you know, whenever we do talk to him, there always seems to be a lot of kids around. Um, and so I was talking to him the other day about kindergarten sight words. So that was, that was kind of a funny uh, change in conversation. But uh, he's great. Love his ideas. Really helpful really knowledgeable, uh, really informative. And so I want to thank him um, for joining us, joining me, joining you, telling you all of that stuff. Uh, This is the uh, crow's nest where we look ahead and identify dangers out there and tell you about them. Always looking for opportunities to use that. In any event, this is the crow's nest. This is the Sea Cadets. I'm Sean Johnson. Uh, Check us out. Instagram. YouTube pages, uh, Facebook, Facebook Workplace, your Magellan emails, which you get a lot of. You know us from there. And then, as always, you can check this out, um, The Crow's Nest, on Anchor. And then we're going to be on Spotify and other platforms soon. So take it away. 
Take a battleship, an excursion ship, or a fishing ship will do. And if you can't take a big ship, then take a small canoe. Bon voyage to you, my friend. I'll meet you at the journey's end. If you like briny seas, rolling waves, and ocean breeze, then go take a ship for yourself.